0: Well, good morning. Thanks again for uh, joining us this morning for our online service. Before we begin, uh, would you do me a favor? Go get your Bible right now uh, so that we can be ready to uh, look and turn into God's Word. And so as you're getting your Bible, I just want to take an opportunity right now uh, to say thank you. To thank uh, not only you for being with us, but to thank uh, our staff, our lay leaders, our volunteers, uh, all here at South Suburban Christian Church who have made not only this ministry possible, but all of the other ministries that we continue to do in the life of our church. This is our 16th week online. Our lives have changed significantly over the past 16 weeks, not only here uh, at South Suburban Christian Church, but throughout the world. Uh, Across our nation, uh, estimates are that about 15 to 20 percent of all congregations throughout the entire nation have already closed permanently. They won't be reopening because of the pandemic. According to the Washington Post nationwide, uh, giving to churches has declined by 65%. And churches that did reopen uh, in the past weeks are seeing an attendance of about 30% of what they would have seen back in February. And many of those congregations are already beginning to close again uh, because of funding issues and trying to figure out how to afford to fund not only their in-person gatherings, but their online presence as well, as well as churches in places like Ohio, Oklahoma, uh, Texas, Georgia, and Florida, where as those churches begin to gather, uh, their COVID-19 cases begin to increase, uh, forcing them to uh, close again i can tell you that uh, uh, i i know one thing i know that i have no clue what's going to happen in the next month or two we have here at south suburban christian church a facility utilization team that has been busily working uh, to try to figure out what it would mean what it would look like uh, for us to be able to gather again in person in our building Uh, we want to do it in such a way that we can keep our worshipers and our staff safe Uh, We're working here in partnership with other large uh, congregations in in our area, in our community uh, to coordinate with the local health department to see if we can develop protocols that uh, will both uh, keep folks safe and allow us to begin using the facility. Meanwhile, in the midst of all of that work that's being done, it really is encouraging uh, to see our small groups, our classes, our membership, the evangelistic opportunities that this online service has provided, our social media platforms uh, that are being used to encourage and support people, not only here in our community, but across the nation and even around the world. As of last Sunday, our services have been viewed almost 9,000 times. That's an average of about 600 computers uh, signing on each week to view one of our services. 59 people have rededicated their lives to Christ or have entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ for the first time over these past 16 weeks. Like I said, I have no clue what's going to happen over the next month or so or even the next couple of months. But I do know this, I am walking as you are walking, as we are walking together with the one who does know and that is jesus christ as you might imagine um (laughs) we have received some criticism that uh, maybe the reason we're not opening is because we're motivated by fear well maybe that's sort of right we are motivated by fear but our fear is not of COVID 19 our fear is in a godly holy it is a godly holy reverent fear of the lord And seeking to see what the Lord is doing and how the Lord is leading us into a future that we all may not understand. uh, But uh, I know that God is in the midst of this. And so I thank you for your continued prayers and support, even if you might not uh, agree with everything in terms of the speed of the process. Thank you for your love of Jesus Christ. Thank you for your love of this congregation. Thank you for your love of Uh, of life, uh, of the church, of the family of God. And so with that, let's turn now, if you've gotten your Bibles, to John chapter 4. I'm going to begin reading in verse 46 of John chapter 4. So, he, that is Jesus, came again to Cana and Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed, and all his household This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As uh, we look at this passage of Scripture, there's a ton of stuff going on here. Number one, uh, this is actually the third encounter uh, between Jesus and somebody uh, where the conversation doesn't normally go as we would expect, well, polite conversation to go. Back in chapter 3, Jesus had an exchange with Nicodemus, a religious leader of the time, and Jesus is trying to explain to Nicodemus about what it means to be born again. Nicodemus just can't understand. He doesn't get the idea. And Jesus, in this um, perhaps moment of uh, of frustration, Uh, Says to Nicodemus, you're a teacher of Israel and you don't understand this? Following that exchange in the early part of chapter 4, Jesus is making his way through Samaria. Now you'll remember uh, that Judea is the region to the north where Jerusalem is. Galilee is the, I'm sorry, Judea is the region to the south where Jerusalem is. Galilee is the region to the north uh, where Nazareth and Capernaum and, and frankly where Jesus did much of his ministry. But that region in the middle between Galilee and Judea is Samaria. And uh, the Jews don't really get along very well with the Samaritans. And in the first part of chapter 4, Jesus is making his way through Samaria, and he stops at the well, and he meets the Samaritan woman, or as you might have heard, the woman at the well. And in that exchange, uh, Jesus has another conversation that may not have been one that we would expect to have in polite company. He tells the woman, go get your husband, and she has to say, I I don't have a husband. And then that's when Jesus, fully knowing the situation of the woman, says, you're well to say you don't have a husband. As a matter of fact, you've had five, and the one you're with now is not your husband. So uh, an uncomfortable conversation that Jesus is having. In uh, chapter 4, verse 16, is when he asks her all that stuff. In verse 39, uh, the uh, woman goes to town. Uh, and and tells everybody in the town about this Jesus that she's met. And, And the text says that they believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. And there's that word believe. It's going to come up a few more times in our message today. In verse 42, just a few verses afterwards, John writes that the townspeople actually eventually say to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said, that we believe, but we have heard ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. And so, finally, in this trifecta of stories, you might say, we encounter the third and final person whom Jesus has an exchange with a, Roman, a, a royal official, not a Roman official, a royal official. Um, that, that means that this person with whom Jesus is having a conversation is a part of the, the household or, or the government of Herod. This is Herod Antipas, who is the king of Galilee, the northern region. This isn't the same Herod uh, that we talked about a few weeks ago. This is who was the, the king of Judea. This is the Herod the king of Galilee. And the interesting thing about these Herods, and, and sometimes we can get confused uh, trying to figure out who all of these guys are that carry the name Herod, the reason they carry the name Herod is because they're a part of a particular group called the Herodians. And, and these Herodians were a faction, really a family that became a faction that really had come to fame many decades prior to Jesus. Uh, but after they had gained power because of their greed, because of their desire uh, for their own power and position, really had become really terrible leaders and, and not respected anymore by the people. and And, and what really happens with folks who are connected to the herodians whether they work for them are related to them are supporters of them they aren't respected either because the herodians really aren't known for their piety they're not known for their faith in god and those that work for them aren't known for their piety or their faith as well you know there comes a point however in all of our lives when we're prepared to abandon all of our previously held opinions or ideas, when, when what we have arrogantly held on to be our truth, whether it is actually the truth or not, whether it's a truth that we hold on to to advance our own positions or to put us in a position of power or influence over others, There is always a situation that every single one of us will look back and say, What is really important in this moment? A situation that is severe enough. A situation that is significant enough. A situation that is problematic enough that we will do anything within our power to make sure what we want to happen happens. One does not need to be a believer a follower of Jesus Christ, a believer in God, to understand the profound connection between a parent and a child, the love that a parent has for a child. That's why when a parent abandons their child, it is such a horrific concept in in, in not just our culture, but all cultures' understanding. How can a parent go against that innate drive within them to not do anything that they can do for their children this royal official has a son this royal official's son is ill the text says to the point of death it's his child <laughs> it's this young boy that he loves that there's not anything that he wouldn't do that there's not any place he wouldn't go there's not any mountain he wouldn't move to ensure that his son had some semblance of hope for tomorrow if anybody could heal his son he would do whatever needed to be done to provide that healing for his boy so this man this royal official goes to jesus and he literally begs him to come and heal his son. Now if you would, I want you to look at a couple of things. Look at uh, verse 48 first. So Jesus says to him, "Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe." Now, now one of the problems with this is, is that in the English language, um, it's really hard to distinguish between a singular and a plural you. yOU. Now, unless you're from the South, and then of course we have a different word, it's y'all. So it's important to be able to see, though, that if we were translating this passage of Scripture, well, in the South, Jesus said to him, Unless y'all see signs. You see, this is a plural you. What that means is, is that Jesus is not speaking to the official, to just the official but that Jesus is speaking to the crowd. He's speaking to everyone who is watching, those who can hear His voice. You know, they got their own questions. You've probably been in a situation like that where you've looked at the person who's the focus of interest or the person who's in charge, and you said, I wonder what he'll do or what she'll do next. How will she handle this situation? This crowd was doing the same thing with Jesus. Would this Jesus really heal the child of a Herodian? Would this Jesus really heal the child of somebody who was so hated and mistrusted by the people? Could Jesus really heal? I've heard stories that he'd healed people. This might be an opportunity for me to actually see whether or not what I've heard about Jesus is really true. Will this be a sign? Will this be a miracle? Will this finally convince the crowd that Jesus is who He says He is? That He's the Son of God? God the Son, as John, the writer of the Gospel, is trying to reveal to us. And so, in this moment of frustration, Jesus makes this statement. Unless you all see signs and wonders, you will not believe. I mean, isn't that how all of us are as human beings? Don't all of us need signs? Don't, don't, Don't we pride ourselves with this concept that unless we see it, we won't believe it? Sort of like Thomas, when he had heard that Jesus had been raised from the dead. Unless I can put my finger in the holes of his hand and my hand into his side, I will not believe. But isn't it true that really, that bravado that we have that we won't believe things without absolute irrefutable truth really perhaps more a sign of our struggle than it is of our bravado. That we struggle to grasp what the faith calls us to be and what the faith calls us to do. That sometimes we really struggle with what God is doing in our lives in the lives of those whom we love, in the life of our community, our nation, our very globe. Well, then, in this text, something powerful begins to happen. Jesus says to this man, Go, your son will live. And then John says, and look there in uh, verse 50, the man believed the word of Jesus. Well, there's that word "believe" again. <laughs> the same word that was used back when the townsfolk in Samaria believed the word of the women, of the woman, and then told her later, "Now we believe not because of what you've said, but because of what we've seen ourselves." You know, in some ways, wouldn't it be nice—and no comments from the back rows back there? Wouldn't it be nice if we just end the sermon right here? I mean, we've got this wonderful image: Jesus says, "Go, your son uh, has been has been made well; he will live," and the man believes and goes. I mean, after all, we know the boy is healed, and this would be the perfect point and the message. To simply address all of you watching today and ask you this question Do you want to believe just like this man believed? Well, I, I think, as a matter of fact, that most of us do believe exactly like this man believed. L- let's, let's keep reading, or rereading as the case may be. So, so the man leaves. And uh, as we, we, we go down here in verse 51, as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when, uh, when he began to get better, and they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. And the father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. After the man had inquired uh, about his son's condition and and testing when exactly his son's condition began to improve, he's traveled all night and into the second day to get back home to be with his son again to see if what the words Jesus had said would really come to pass, even though he did believe. In that moment when his servants tell him that the improvement in his son began at the exact moment Jesus had spoken the words to him, then the text says, and he himself believed. And that's something interesting, isn't it? In in many ways, our minds, when we see that, we we might just say, oh, okay, and just keep reading on and moving on, but, but wait a minute. I mean, didn't he believe the previous day? That's what John said here. I mean, it's actually the same exact word, not only in the English, but also in the original Greek. It's the same exact word. Isn't belief, well, shouldn't it be more clean cut than that? I mean, should there be some sense of, I mean, either you believe or you don't believe, right? Isn't that how it works? Well, I think you and I both know that belief is one of those interesting things, isn't it? The word that's that's used throughout the New Testament is translated in various ways. That original word that's translated believe here. Sometimes it's translated, and perhaps most of the time, about 244 times, it's translated simply believe. The second most way that it's used uh, or translated is the word faith, that he had faith. And others and not as prevalent, but in others, it's oftentimes translated persuaded. He was persuaded or she was persuaded. In other passages, it can be translated to entrust something, that that something is entrusted, and you receive that which has been entrusted. And in a few cases, not very many, it's even translated to do, as sort of to do something without full knowledge of what one is doing or the ramifications of it, that they're just willing to do it because they're told. You see, when Jesus uses the plural you here, y'all won't believe unless you see signs, or more accurately, y'all won't believe until y'all see signs, maybe he was talking to the man as well as to the crowd. Maybe everyone that was within distance of his voice and could hear him were those to whom he was speaking. You know, in this current culture in which we find ourselves, too often it's our desires, our wants, or those things by which we judge others, isn't it? That is, is if we get what we want, then we believe in whatever it is the person is saying to us. Th- that is, is that we base our commitment, we base our support, we base our liking, our appreciation on whether or not we get something beneficial here now from the one who has said it or promised it to us or is in charge of the situation. But what does it mean to say that I have faith in Jesus? What does it mean when I ask, do you believe in Jesus? If we're to judge the truthfulness of our faith in Jesus by how much or how nice uh, the things that we get Or, then we, like the crowd that Jesus is speaking to, have utterly missed the point. If being a follower of Jesus means that we live a, a blessed life with financial wealth and physical health, then I'm not really sure what you and I would say to the apostles, all who lost their lives horrifically, except for John, who died in exile. Or to the martyrs, who were beaten and executed in horrific ways because of their refusal to reject or recant their faith in Jesus Christ. The Bible uses the phrase faith in Jesus synonymously with belief in Jesus as the Savior. Paul begins to unpack this more in Romans chapter three, verses twenty-two through twenty-three. Uh, Righteousness is given through faith. That's that word, belief, faith. In Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's the word again. There's no difference, Paul goes on, between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You see, when we place our faith in Jesus, we believe in Him. And God grants His righteousness to us. To have faith in Jesus means to trust Him simply, fully, without reservation. On one occasion, before Jesus healed two blind men, He asked them, Do you believe that I am able to do what you have asked me to do? And they answered, Yes, Lord. And He healed them according to their faith the text says in Matthew chapter 9, verses 28 and 29. The men simply trusted the power and the goodness of the Lord, and they received their sight. You see, when a person has faith in Jesus, it means that he or she believes who Jesus is. That is, Jesus is God in human form and trusts what Jesus has done. That is, is, that He has died and been raised again this faith in the person and the work of Jesus Christ is what saves us. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. John says again when he writes this time in his letter, 1 John chapter 5 verse 1. John 3:16 For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. You see, the key is belief in response to God's love, that what God is speaking to us is true, that God is who He says He is. And anyone who places her or his faith in Jesus has the promise not only of eternal life, but of truth and of meaning in this life. Without faith in Jesus, we remain in our brokenness. We remain in our confusion. We are stuck in our sin, and we cannot be accepted. God's presence in His kingdom calls us to Himself through faith, through belief in Jesus Christ it's through jesus through this belief in jesus through this faith in jesus that god has given us the greatest gift of full and complete access to the father as god's own children it's why the writer of hebrews says that because of jesus we can enter boldly into the presence of god it's because of jesus that you and I have been called into this moment here right now as together we're worshiping the Lord and enjoying His presence in our lives. Even in the midst of the struggle of the pandemic that's around us, even in the midst of the anger and the division, much of it truly needing to be attended to and dealt with. But it's Jesus who continues to speak peace. It's Jesus who speaks hope. It's Jesus who speaks justice. And it's Jesus who speaks the eternality of a life with God. To have faith in Jesus is to reject all other ways of salvation. That is that it's not my works that make me righteous before God. It's not my works that bring salvation to the world. It's not the work uh, of of human beings within a church that, that causes God's grace and love to flow over the world. We don't trust any of those things. We trust only in Jesus and Him alone. In Acts chapter 4, verse 12, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to humankind by which we must be saved. Jesus. Belief in him, faith in him. Jesus is the fulcrum, the pinnacle. Even our relationship as a congregation, our relationship as believers our relationship as a community it's not because we find one another to be necessarily enjoyable to be enjoyable to be around but it's because of jesus we we look not to one another only but we look to christ and in looking to him that relationship with him defines who we are as individuals and as a group just like last week when we heard john reference mary not as mary but the mother of jesus we are defined we are made who we are because of jesus he is the reason he is the one that holds tomorrow he is the one that is calling us and leading us he is the one that knows what's happening in the midst of this pandemic where no one else seems to know what's going on i can assure you jesus knows And to stay close to Him in the midst of this uncertainty, to stay close to Him in the midst of this this loneliness and, and, and the depression that it oftentimes brings, it's Jesus who will carry us in His very arms through this season. It's Jesus who will finally give us the humility to look at one another and see that each of us are made in the image of God. It is He who will whisper into our ears, that I have made him and I have made her, and they are beautiful in my sight. (laughs) One of the first full-fledged celebrities in America was a tightrope walker named Charles Blondine. As a matter of fact, Abraham Lincoln mentioned him several times in his campaign speeches. It was in the mid-1800s, and this gentleman wowed everyone. On June 30th, 1859, Blondin was attempting what no human being had ever done before. He was going to cross Niagara Falls from New York to Ontario on a tightrope. Some records say that over 100,000 people showed up to witness this. Blondin asks the crowd, do you believe that I can cross on this tightrope? And some in the crowd shouted, we believe. Others shouted, pass the popcorn. (laughs) But there he goes, crossing the 1,100-foot expanse over the churning waters 160 feet below. Blondine makes it across, no problem at all. The crowd is abuzz. They've just witnessed the impossible. So when asked if they believed Blondine could cross that same expanse, blindfolded oh the crowd was whipped into a frenzy and shouted yes we believe blondine puts on his blindfold and walks across the tightrope yet again when he gets to the other side he turns to the crowd once more and says do you think that i can do it again but pushing this time a wheelbarrow Now, now this wheelbarrow is not the kind that you'd get at the hardware store today. This is the 1850s, a, a weebly, wooden, wobbly wheelbarrow. But he does it again. People are going nuts at this point. As a matter of fact, some observers said that some of the women in the crowd had to take out their smelling salts. And then Blondine pulls out all of the stops, and he turns to the crowd and he says, "'Do you believe that I can cross the Niagara?' And they shout, "'Yes! Yes, we believe!' Pushing this wheelbarrow. Yes, yes, the crowd shouts with fervor with a person in the wheelbarrow. And the crowd shouts, We believe, we believe, we believe. Then Blondine says, Which one of you will get into the wheelbarrow? And the crowd fell silent. Crickets, I'm telling you. Not one single person in that crowd of tens of thousands of people who had just previously shouted, we believe, we believe, offered to get into that wheelbarrow. You see, belief is more than just stirred up emotions. Belief is more than intellectual assent. Belief, trust is putting our lives on the line and getting into Jesus' wheelbarrow. It's easy to join Blondine's crowd and holler, we believe, we believe. We put it into our mission statements. We put it on our brochures. We put it on our websites. We confess it in the sanctuaries of our churches week after week. But the question is this, will we die to ourselves, risk our life, and go out on Jesus' word? Think of His word. Think of his word in the Sermon on the Mount. Think of words like forgiveness, purity, generosity, secrecy, and sacrifice. It's easy to want to help somebody when it's not anything we have to sacrifice to do it. It's another thing to take food from the mouths of our children so that someone else can feed their own. That's what it means to truly love our neighbors. That official had to let go of his grasp on the the situation. He had to take that long walk that took all night long to get back when he didn't know what was going to happen next. Just like I and we don't know what's going to happen next, But without faith, brothers and sisters, it's impossible to please God. There's one final bit of this story that will help us close out today. (laughs) And all of the years that Blondine did that trick, and and he did it, I think, something like 3,000 times throughout his lifetime, only two people ever came forward to be carried across that expanse by Blondine. One was his manager, Harry Culcord, who was carried across the Niagara Falls on Blondine's back. And the second person, who actually did get in the wheelbarrow, was Blondine's nephew. And he successfully wheeled him across the Niagara Falls. What do both of those folks have in common? They both had a relationship with Mr. Blondine. A stranger never put anything on the line. And that's what this man shows us today. And that's what I'm asking you today. The only way that you can put something on the line for the sake of Christ is if you're willing to have a relationship with Christ. Would you do that today? would you say yes to this question? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and you accept Him as Lord and Savior? I can't guarantee health and wealth, power and prestige, but I can guarantee eternal life. I can guarantee a a life of meaning and truth. And I can guarantee that Christ will use you his glory. And I don't know about you, but for me, that's got to be the greatest identity a human life can ever claim. That we offered ourselves to God for his glory. Merciful God, thank you for those who said yes today. Thank you for those who have rededicated their lives today. Thank you for those who today are getting into that wheelbarrow who are stepping out, believing, maybe not fully yet, but knowing that as they do, they will come to the point when they'll fully believe, as this man did with his son, as you have called us to do for these 2,000 years until you come again. We may not know what tomorrow holds, but we do know who holds tomorrow, and that is you.